How would you like to feel a little uncomfortable today? Our subject is one that rarely seems to be a topic of discussion. That subject is hell. For obvious reasons, and some not so obvious, we just don't like to talk about hell. In fact, we talk about it so infrequently that some of us have come to doubt whether or not hell is real at all. And then there's that ever-challenging question, why would a holy God send anyone to hell? Let's talk about hell on today's edition of Craving Answers, Craving God. I'm Chuck Rathard with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. Aaron, our listener may think that you're not very happy with me for bringing this topic to the table, but you suggested that we address it. Can you start by putting our uncomfortable listener at ease? No, I'm not really sure how I would do that. I mean, the topic itself is uh, brought up in Scripture in order to make us feel uncomfortable. So there's not really any good way to talk about hell and put people at ease unless you strip it of what it really is saying in the Bible. Um, But as far as uh, the listener being uncomfortable or uh, upset that this topic will be brought up, I actually have found that that's not the case. Mostly it's Christians who don't like to talk about this. It makes them feel awkward. It makes them feel like they've got to answer questions about how they're narrow-minded and um, um, view people differently. They're, uh, They're awkward about the notion that believing in hell causes Christians to... Um, uh, be more prone to violence and vengeance themselves. Unbelievers, though, I found, um, for instance, when I'm teaching at school, it's a topic that comes up frequently. Uh, they have questions. They want to know if this is true, true or not that Christians believe this. And uh, and the the ones who have kind of studied it out and know what uh, Christians believe about hell will frequently say, "I don't understand how you guys can believe something like this." So it's a topic that's out there and needs to be discussed. And at some point, we were talking a few minutes ago before we started here, at some point we're going to have to talk about this anyway, and today's the day, I guess. So that's kind of catches me off guard there. I I guess I would have assumed that it was the opposite, that Christians would be comfortable talking about hell since Christians are familiar with their Bible and that non-Christians would be uncomfortable. So I'm trying to imagine what a conversation between Pastor Miller and an unbeliever looks like or sounds like when you're talking about hell. They're more or less comfortable with that conversation? Well, so comfortable might be the wrong word. Nobody's comfortable with hell. This is so uh, believers and unbelievers alike, nobody likes the idea. And that's what that's one of the things when you talk about hell. So I, I grew up in a tradition that talked about hell quite a lot. And um they did so in a triumphalistic way, a little bit arrogant way. What does triumphalistic mean? Just this notion that like we're right and you're wrong, and this sort of like someday you're going to get yours in hell. And uh, talking about it was sort of a, a not not happy. That's not the word I'm looking for, but sort of with a um, a bit of assurance and um, gloating, maybe a little bit, uh, but certainly not with the sorrow. That should be there if one understands exactly what hell is. And so, um, yeah, nobody's comfortable with it. Now, the difference, though, is that Christians are uncomfortable with it, and so they don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Listen, you know, we don't, want it, we don't want this. I hope this topic does not come up 
when I'm evangelizing or talking with my friends about uh, Jesus. I hope the subject of hell doesn't come up because it's embarrassing to say, well, first of all, this is you know, superstitious stuff. We're all philosophical materialists here in the West, and the notion that there's some sort of existence after human death is you feel a little bit silly about that anyway a lot of times. Then you add the whole mean, cruel, tormenting God, and then the, the images from the Far Side cartoons with the, you know, the demons walking around uh, on the, the catwalks with pitchforks looking down at the poor, tormented souls. We, we just don't want to talk about it at all. Unbelievers, they are uncomfortable with it too, but they want to talk about it because they are uncomfortable with it, and they want to find out why is it that this is a thing. And so nobody's really comfortable with it, but I have found that Christians don't want to talk about it. Unbelievers do. If hell is real— and we believe that it is, and it is terrible, and it is eternal, then it would follow, it seems to me, that the Bible would address it frequently. Yet I found only 17 references, all in the New Testament, to the word hell uh, in all of Scripture. Now, I, I know that there are Old Testament references to Sheol, yeah. uh, but it seems in both Testaments to be understated. It's just not really a central topic. Why is that? Yeah, so it's not the main topic. Uh, it's it's and neither is heaven. Heaven is very very understood. There's hardly there's way more mentions of hell than there is of heaven. Now I know that you know kingdom of heaven Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew a lot, but um, he doesn't mean of the kingdom that's in heaven. He means the kingdom that's from heaven there here on earth. Um, yeah, the, the 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 state of the soul after death. Is hardly ever mentioned. Well, it's hard, I should, hardly ever is probably too strong. Like you pointed out, it's not mentioned a ton of times. And the reason why is because um, God is more concerned with ruling and reigning in the here and now and in the new creation. When uh, the Bible teaches that when Jesus comes back, he's going to make all things new. Now, what happens to the souls of believers and unbelievers after they die? That's important, but it's not the most important thing. So it's you're right. It's not in every paragraph because, honestly, there's bigger fish to fry in um, the Old and New Testament. Also, you have the issue which you brought up too. Um, the word hell, uh, the, the the concept shows up more frequently than the word does. So you know, Paul doesn't hardly ever use the word hell, but he t frequently talks about final judgment and uh, things like that. So it's bigger than just the word. But but you're right. It is not the most important thing in the Bible. I'm surprised by that. It, it is the worst possible outcome for a human being. There is nothing in human experience, if the Bible is true, and we believe that it is, that could be worse than eternal death. It just strikes me as odd that the Bible doesn't seem to address it very much, almost as if it's an afterthought. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of ways. I mean— Again, the, the the goal of Scripture is new creation, and the Bible draws us towards that new creation with the promise of Jesus, by the promise and power of the Holy Spirit, by pulling us into this story where the Creator God, who's been rebelled against by humans, um, who's had his own beautiful universe destroyed and damaged by human sin and rebellion— he is pulling us into this story of good, and that's the motivation. I, th there's a bad alternative, yeah, but that's not a good motivation in Scripture. I, I got to tell you, like one of my one of my most 
horrible nightmares is getting uh, brain cancer. That's I don't that that it's I would probably rather be um, you know shot in the kneecap and slowly bleed to death and to get brain cancer and die. But honestly, I don't walk around thinking, okay, what do I have to do to avoid brain cancer? Uh, you, you just can't think like that. What do you what you do is you try to live a healthy life and try to work out a little bit and try to eat healthy and then. The goal is good health, not avoiding brain cancer. That's the goal is good health. Um, I think the Bible's working on the same principle. And it, it does tell us what the alternative is, what rejecting Jesus ultimately means for humans. But instead of saying, you shouldn't reject Jesus because bad things are ha- going to happen, its default mode is, you should follow Jesus as the Lord of the universe because, look at this, new creation, restored universe healed relationships, healed bodies, healed souls, healed minds. It offers us the good instead of focusing on the bad. So of the 17 mentions of hell in the New Testament, eight of them are in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew seems to have a preoccupation with hell, at least compared to everybody else. Three of those references are in the Sermon on the Mount. Right. And they're not soft references Uh, Matthew says in chapter 5, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, that gets my attention. Do you have any suspicion as to why Matthew has more focus on this than seemingly anybody else in the New Testament? Um, Well, I think that the parallels in Mark and I think that the times that hell is mentioned in Mark and Luke are parallels to Matthew frequently. I haven't looked at them, but you're right. The Sermon on the Mount, there's a big chunk of them in there um, where, where Jesus talks about uh, uh, hell. If you say to your brother, uh, uh, Raka or fool, you are in danger of hell. So. Jesus actually, in the New Testament, the word hell is almost always used by Jesus. Jesus teaches on hell and the final judgment and the destiny of the damned way more than Paul or Peter or John does. And so that, that my suspicion is that um, Jesus is talking a lot in Matthew, and so that teaching comes up. And then Mark and Luke and John, you'll see parallels, but they, they're roughly parallels with Matthew. I don't know if that helps or not. but I, I was just curious. Uh, I'm wondering... Do you, in your Christian conversations, maybe even particularly with young people, encounter folks who think of themselves as Christian, believe in the Bible, but think that hell is really a figurative thing, that's it's not a real thing? Christians who think that way. Do you run into those? Um, not a lot of serious Christians who think that hell is figurative. Now, let me say this. There are Christians who believe in um, different interpretations of hell. Uh, one fairly common one is uh, the teaching. It's called um, conditionalism or annihilation, uh, annihilationism, and which is the belief that hell is not eternal. That um, um, it, it's it's God would not torment somebody forever. Is part of this. The other part of this is that. The Bible does talk about uh, all things being summed up in Jesus Christ, all things being renewed. And so the question is, if there are still souls rebelling against God in hell, how can that passage possibly be true? There's also the notion that uh, the image of fire is inherently a destructive image, 
And so it implies that uh, things get destroyed. Also, the word perishing. The word you know, uh, perish is uh, one of the most common verbs that Jesus uses in relationship to what happens to people who are sent to hell. And the word perish implies a going away. Now, I, I do run into Christians like that, very serious Christians too, and uh, people who um, um, study their Bibles and love Jesus. I, I ultimately don't think the Bible teaches that for reasons we can go into either now or at the future in this podcast. I'm not sure what you think, Chuck, but um, I do think the Bible teaches that hell is an eternal place. Um, unfortunately, I, I say this, I don't, this is, this is one of those times when, and, and everybody who's thoughtful, I'm not saying I'm thoughtful necessarily, but everybody who's thoughtful should have times when you believe stuff that you wish you didn't believe. And this is one of those times for me. I, I don't say this in any sort of triumphalistic way, again, to use that word. Um, unfortunately, I'm kind of constrained by what I think the Bible teaches to say that um, the Bible's description of hell. So, for instance, fire is fire destructive. Well, the uh, very last couple verses in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah says that um, in the eternal judgment, uh, their fire will not die. And it's this, this image of, you see, you know, you see something burn. And it burns, you, know, you, 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 you throw a log on the fire, and it burns until the log's gone, and it's all burned up, and then the fire goes out. And that phrase in Isaiah means that this burning will take place forever. And we can talk for you, come back to this in just a second, you use the word um, um, metaphor or something like that a minute ago. Remind me to come back to that in just a second, Chuck. Also, along with that in Isaiah is this, uh, their worm does not die. That image there, too, is of, you know, if a body dies, you, you know, you, you pass a, a deer carcass that got hit by a car, you know, and, and if the road crew doesn't come along and move it, uh, within a couple of days, it's going to be covered by maggots. Flies are going to lay their eggs in there, and those worms are going to crawl over that deer carcass. You come back a, a month or so later, and the flesh will be gone, the skeleton will be there, and the worms will be gone, too because the worms don't have anything to, to eat on anymore. And what Isaiah is saying there is that their worm will not die means that the process of decomposition will go on forever and ever. Now, we use the word metaphor, and I'm rambling on here. So uh, just cut me off whenever you want, and I'll be done. In, uh, at any rate, I'll be done and uh, give me 10 seconds to say this. Um, the Bible uses a lot of different imagery to describe hell, and, and honestly— what is hell literally like? I don't think that any of us can actually say because the Bible uses a lot of different imagery. Um, fire is a big one uh, because of the word Gehenna, which is the Hebrew word that, uh, that uh, Jesus is using, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount. And we can talk about you, uh, in a minute about why, what Gehenna has to do with fire. There's also the imagery of darkness, which is this uh, image of complete and absolute isolation absolute darkness, pitch black. There's also in, uh, near the end of Matthew, Jesus describing the, the, uh, last, uh, the final judgment of the unbelievers, talks about being cut up, being sliced up, being quartered. Uh, there's also, like I just said a minute ago, the, the image of eternal decomposition, the worm not dying, the fire not going. There's a lot of different images going on there. And um, so we're not exactly sure what hell is exactly like. But all these images seem to point towards uh, um, infinite alienation, infinite um, uh, loneliness, uh, infinite pain, 
uh, infinite separateness from God, infinite death and de- dying decomposition. And um, it's just a sad, um, take all those together, it's just a really sad thing. How would you respond to me if I were to say something like this? Look, here's, here's the main point. The business of eternal death, the horror of eternal death, the reality of it is separation from God forever. The worst possible outcome. But if we say, hey, you're going to be separated from God forever, there are those who say things like, hey, uh, I'm not afraid of going to hell. All my buddies are going to be down there. So because we want to put some kind of tangibility on separation from God, then we use words like eternal fire, eternal loneliness, eternal Uh darkness, eternal pain, all those kind of things to try to get your attention. Right, yeah. Is that valid or invalid? I think that's valid. I, a lot of the imagery, you know, so fire is the big one, right? I, re- I referenced the Far Side cartoons a minute ago. Um, it's, I, you know, I, I don't, th- I, I don't think that hell is a place of literal, like there's flames licking around. I think it's a, a powerful image of what's going on there. Um, you know, Jesus, the, the word fire comes from uh, uh, this notion of Gehenna, which is. The word Jesus uses, it's a Hebrew word. The Valley of Hinnom was where people were told in uh, the, the book of Kings, it's where, that's where people in Israel went to burn their babies up in child sacrifice to Molech. We're told a little bit later on that Josiah, the king, goes to Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom, and desecrates all that so that it can no longer be done. But since that day, the word Gehenna came to represent for the Jews a place of horror, and torment and um, disgustingness, rot, the, the smell of burning and rotting flesh, uh, fractured families, legacies destroyed by idolatry. So the, the, um, the Jews of Jesus' day just readily took that word and used that as, you know, replaced almost, to, to, well, not really, it, but almost replaced the word Sheol with that word. And so, well, it's an image. That, that image of that child sacrifice, right? But it does, it does, it does get our attention. It does help us to focus on. You know, it's real easy, like you said. I've actually never heard somebody say, "I don't mind going to hell." M- most people don't believe in hell. What they can't believe, even more than not believing in hell, though, is that there are Christians who do believe in hell. But the notion of hell is, you know, we talk about separation from God. Uh, Jesus goes through hell on the cross in that moment when, with the sins, when our sins on his shoulders, the father turns his back on him and Jesus says, you know, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he is in hell. Well, maybe somebody could look at that if you have that conversation and say, okay, well, yeah, so I'm not with God. That's actually cool with me. And what the the fire and the worm and the darkness and the cutting up imagery does is say, no, you don't understand what life outside of God, you have never experienced it. There's not a single human alive now who knows what it's like to live outside of the gracious providence of God who cares for us and gives us rain and sunshine and food and families and good times. And we don't know what it's like to live outside of that. Just so you know, though, that is the destiny. If you continue to reject God, that is your destiny, is to be away from God forever. And that is infinite pain, infinite darkness, infinite evil, infinite alienation. 
You mentioned the Far Side cartoon, which used to run in newspapers and has since ended. And I remember a Far Side cartoon where the maestro dies and he goes to hell. And as he arrives, one of the head demons shows him his room where he'll be, and he opens the door, and the room is filled with banjo players. Yeah, yeah. Now, I chuckled at that when I saw that, too, and I, I still find that amusing. Is that a wrong attitude? Can we talk about hell and, and be amused by it? Do you think— uh, If you hate banjo music, I guess. <laughs> Do you think there's an angel tapping me on the shoulder saying, you know what? There's nothing about hell that's funny. Oh, um, you know what? What's interesting about that is that it is funny. I, I, I think it actually comes a little bit close to the truth. I, I think that so. There's this, and I feel like I bring this up every episode. C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce. Um, you know, it's, it's a story of again. If you if you don't remember, I've mentioned this before. Of um, it's a fictional story of a bus trip that is offered anybody in hell who wants to go on this bus trip can get on this bus and go up to heaven. And once there, get off and decide to stay. You can decide to stay. Lewis pictures hell as um, this great, massive, gray, lonely, always shrouded in like the semi-darkness of right after dusk city, ever-expanding, growing infinitely bigger because people cannot be next to each other. It's this loneliness, the emptiness of like feudal culture, the alienation of not being connected to any other humans. Uh, now, I'm not saying that like, you know, that if Mozart went to hell, which I don't think he is, but if he did go to hell, like he'd be stuck in a room with banjo players. But I think that, that there's something that gets to that. It's a place, it's a place of eternal dissatisfaction, a place of eternal discomfort, of eternal angst at an experience. And at the same time, Lewis insists, it's a discomfort and an angst and an alienation and a pain that they would not trade in. It was one of the interesting things that, and usually when I talk about, if I'm talking to unbelievers about this sort of doctrine, you know, I'm thinking about conversations I've had with some of my college students, I usually will say, I usually point out that hell is never in the Bible a place where people are sent unwillingly. It's always a place where people choose to go. We choose to live our lives as fallen humans. We choose to live our lives away from God. We don't want God. What, 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 about, the way, what about ourselves that we know about ourselves? would indicate that at some point in the future we'll want to change that. That if somebody does not like God, does not like oppressive religion, and like, you guys are so close-minded, and all of a sudden there's going to be a moment in history where they're like, okay, now, now I want to go to an infinitely long worship service. I want to gather around the throne and sing praises to this lamb when they never have. That person, Lewis, insists Never, it doesn't exist. In fact, in, in The Great Divorce, he talks about hell being locked from the inside. And part of the story, you go, go, go read the story yourself. Part of the story is that people take this bus trip up to heaven, and they realize when they get there, I don't want any part of this heaven place. I, um, Lewis in another place, it's not in The Great Divorce, but he talks about hell. He's describing hell, and he says, it starts off with like, and I can't remember exactly what he says. I'm just flying off the cuff here. But hell starts off with, 
you you know you you, you, you you're gossiping about your coworkers and you gossip about your coworkers and it becomes a habit on the job site to gossip about your coworkers and before long you realize you're, you you can kind of sit outside of that and you can look at yourself and be like I don't know if I like the kind of person that I am at work you know talking about my, but you keep on doing that and before long it becomes you that's who you are and even when you're not at work even when the people that you complain about are gone or are acting right, the gossiping is still there. And before long, life is one low rumble of gossip, not because it's something you do, because it's who you are. And Lewis says, that's hell. That's hell. You will go to hell gossiping, and you will look back on your life here and realize it was just stage one. It was just the prelude for what I'm doing now. Before our our program gets away from us here, let's deal with that big question that I referenced in, in the beginning. You're evangelizing a, an unbelieving friend. Yeah. And they're engaged. It's not a passive conversation. They're actively engaged. And they look at you and they say, how can a God that is all good, a God that is holy, a God that is all loving, possibly send anybody to hell? And in saying that, they imply two things that they don't want anything to do with that God. Right. And they're a little disappointed in you because you do want to have something to do with that God. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Well, I go back to what Lewis says, that I would just say God, a good God, doesn't send anybody to hell. People go to hell. People choose hell. There's a... um, um Again, so Lewis, you know, hell is locked from the inside. So another, another great Lewis quote, or this is three Lewis quotes, I apologize. Um, there's two kinds of people at the end of time. There'll be two kinds of people. Though, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. At any rate, our wills will be done to either belong to God or to reject God. And hell is a place where people get what they want. Hell is a place where people who don't want anything to do with God will get that forever. They will get their desire forever to not have anything to do with God. And so as a good, good example is um, from Scripture is the story of Lazarus and the rich man, right? So it's a parable, right? It's, it's, we shouldn't milk the details for all their work worth because it is a parable. But um, there's a rich man. He is um, got this poor guy named Lazarus uh, wandering around begging food from him. Um, the rich man dies and goes to hell, and um, this is a, a story, a fictional story Jesus is telling, um, looks up into Abraham's bosom, or it looks up into heaven and says, uh, he doesn't, here's what he says, he does, well, let me tell you what he doesn't say, he does not say, surprise of surprises, he does not say, can you get me out of here? He doesn't say that, which is bizarre. You would think that if somebody in hell could ask a request of anybody outside of hell, they would say, Get me out of here. Instead, what he does is he says, that poor guy who I used to be socially better than on earth and who I'm assuming I'm still socially better than him, can, can you send my water boy down here to serve me a drink? Now, I mean, he's, he's you know, it's, uh, in, in the story, you know, he's, he's in the fires of hell and he's tormented, but he hasn't actually changed. He hasn't actually become a good person who like, how can God do this to such a nice guy? He's still a jerk. 
He's still self-important. And on top of that, in the story, he doesn't evince any desire at all to be let out. And I would say that's what hell is. This is, you have a choice. You know, you, the, the, the choices are infinite worship service or hell. And I think that if I offered that to any sane person and said, any person, believing or unbelieving, I think the choice would be clear. What do you want? Would you like to infinitely worship the creator God? Or would you like to be separated from the creator God forever? That's the choice that people make. Now, um, uh, God wants us to, uh, you know, he wants, our, he wants our hearts. He does not want us. He tells us about hell because he, he wants us to know that being separated from him eternally is not something that we want, even though we think we want it, even though if Lewis is right, even in hell, we will want it. Because our heart's deepest desires would be met and filled and satisfied by submitting to the Lord of the universe, which seems like it's a kind of hell to people who don't want God. That's the, the opposite is actually, you know, they, they, they feel like being separated from him would be good and being uh, one of his servants, one of his children submitted to him would be hell. And God wants to convince us in Scripture it's actually the opposite. Here's my last question. In our apologetics, that is our personal defense for the faith that lives in us, we like to talk about heaven, I think, but not so much about hell. So if we take that approach, do we love our neighbor by embracing heaven talk and avoiding hell talk, or do we harm our neighbor by taking that approach? Um, probably harm, although I think that we need to use the scriptures ratio, right? I don't think that hell needs to be the main topic. I think it needs to be said, basically the message of hell for unbelievers is this. I, I know that you don't want God in your life, but you don't quite know what that means. You think that you don't have God in your life now, but he still is being good to you. He still gives you air to breathe, and he gives you friends, and he gives you love, and he gives you food and rain and sunshine and whatnot. That might go away someday if you continue to reject him. But the main message is, and, and I'm assuming you don't mean uh, heaven, but the new creations, um, the main message is, is, look, God is acting right now to renew this world through the message of Jesus Christ, through the gospel of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can be a part of something really cool, really powerful, really life-changing. You can be a part of transforming God's creation in the lordship and kingship of Jesus Christ. C come get on board, like submit to him, believe in him, and you can be a part of this. That's the main message in, in evangelism is you, you know that things are wrong with the world. You can be a part of the real solution. Get on board. That's our conversation on hell, and we hope, dear listener, that we didn't make you feel too uncomfortable today. We want to thank you for listening to Craving Answers, Craving God with Aaron Miller, pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. We encourage you to share your questions and comments on our website at stjamesglencarbon.org. Just click Contact Us, and you can leave your message there. I'm Chuck Rathert. Thanks for listening.